We're going to read from Matthew chapter 21 this morning. I wonder if you would read with me today. You can either follow the screen behind me or you can read on the notes if you grab them on the way in. As he approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, in Galilee. God, our Father, as we gather together today and we remember back and we think about the meaning of Jesus' arrival on this very first Palm Sunday, I pray that you will draw our hearts and minds to understand the power and the impact and the drama of that morning, but also that you will allow us to see the lasting significance of why we celebrate this day and what it means for us here in this time. So, Lord, I, I pray that your Spirit will guide us and bring understanding, and even more, that you will drive this home personally for each of us, no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey, that you'll bring clarity and maybe something new for those who are newer to our church or back in a church after a long time away. And we also pray that you will revive the, the passion for walking through the drama of the events of this final week of Jesus. For those of us who are longtime church members and longtime Christians, and that you will renew our sense of awe over who he is and what he's done for us. Thank you for the message of the gospel, that you are a God who forgives sins, and that you connect with people in such a deep and powerful way that you put your spirit in them and you walk with them for the rest of their lives. And I pray that there'd be some even here this morning who reach out to find you in a new and fresh and powerful way. So guide us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a confession to make. When I was in my teenage years and probably in my early 20s, I used to wonder about something we're not supposed to wonder about in church. I wondered, what does Palm Sunday really have to offer to us, and why does Palm Sunday take up the whole focus of a church for an entire Sunday every single year? I thought, you know, it's a nice story. Uh, in, in Sunday school, we turned it into a, a little pageant, and so kids got involved, and they played various roles. It's essentially the account of Jesus the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and I thought at that time, we all know this happened, but why does this deserve the same amount of focus that we give to Christmas, for instance, or Easter? 
a whole Sunday in, in the church year. For that reason, imagining that a high school student or maybe somebody who is a bit cynical about church may be listening today, we're going to come at Palm Sunday from that angle. Here's the question that I have behind this message. Why is the Palm Sunday entry of Jesus such a pivotal event that it requires our focus for a whole Sunday at least once a year? So let me say good morning to all my friends here at North River and to those of you who are watching online as well. Welcome back or welcome for the first time. If you're new to us, we're really glad you're here. Uh, I want to welcome you all and uh, make you feel at home here today. This, This part of this morning service was written with you in mind, especially if you are newer to church. We're glad that you're here and I want you to know that your questions are welcome. That everybody has questions, and I often raise the questions that I used to wrestle with when I was at a younger point in life. The message from this morning, and Good Friday, and Easter, are all intended to support each other in the way that we've arranged them this year, much like a three-part series. So this message responds to the question that I just raised, and our topic is this, a clash of kingdoms. One of the reasons why this particular uh, Palm Sunday event was so pivotal is that there was a clash of kingdoms that was going on behind the event itself. And when we understand that clash, it makes us understand why this was so important and why Christians for centuries have chosen this particular Sunday just before Easter in, in order to celebrate the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. Let me walk you through three movements of this clash. Here's the first one. Jesus' arrival was a kingdom statement. You often don't think of it that way. We think of kids waving palm branches and all that kind of stuff. But it was a powerful kingdom statement as Jesus was coming into the capital city of Israel. Two verses that I want to look at right now in in, uh, chapter 21 of Matthew, verses 4 and 5. There Matthew writes... This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include the Palm Sunday event. Some of these gospels trace the final months of Jesus' public ministry year, you know, that final year before he came to his death on the cross. Some of the gospels, specifically Matthew and Mark, follow Jesus from the time when he gathered his first few disciples, tracing a chronological journey all the way through so that each passage that follows literally happened historically uh, one after the other, leading us to the cross and the resurrection. When we get to this Palm Sunday event, one of the things that hits me is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing on that original Palm Sunday. Jesus had begun his ministry announcing that the kingdom of heaven had come. So he started talking about this unusual kingdom, this kingdom that he was coming to introduce people to. It and had to, sometimes he called it the kingdom of God and sometimes he called it the kingdom of heaven. Matthew tells us here that Jesus rode in on that donkey to fulfill what prophets had written about literally hundreds of years earlier. So he was specifically quoting the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. 
Zechariah was a prophet during the time when Nehemiah led some of the Israelites out of captivity in Babylon, think of modern-day Iraq, and brought them back to the city. The city had been destroyed 70 years earlier, and Nehemiah came back to rebuild the walls. And then there was a spiritual revival that was led by Ezra, who was more or less the religious leader who came on the heels of Nehemiah. And so some of these people were coming during that time to rebuild the city. The Babylonian captivity ended the reign of Israel's physical kings where one sat on the throne. But there was a greater king who had been prophesied about, a king who would have a lasting kingdom. And so Zechariah offered this encouraging vision of a day when Israel's people would no longer fear or serve a foreign king. They would have a king of their own, a king of God's own choosing, who would ride into the city in this specific way on a donkey, on the unbroken foal of a donkey. Zechariah that day when he wrote that offered a sign that enabled the people of Jerusalem to recognize when their long hoped for king was arriving. He would not come into the city riding on a warrior's white horse. He would come with gentleness riding on a donkey. So Jesus arrived knowing full well that he was fulfilling a prophecy that had great meaning for those who had studied the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, and who are longing for the fulfillment of this prophecy when the rightful king of Israel would finally show up and arrive. This is why some of the people in that crowd went out and they started cutting down palm branches. And they were waving the palm branches and then spreading them on the pathway before Jesus. And other people took off their their coats or their cloaks and they laid them down on the path. Or some of the disciples took off their cloaks and laid them on the donkey itself for Jesus to sit on their cloaks. Doing all of this identified him as the messianic king who was foretold by Zechariah more than 500 years before the earthly ministry years of Jesus. The word Messiah means chosen one, that he was chosen by God for this role. So when we celebrate Palm Sunday, we are acknowledging that God fulfills his promises and he makes promises and he fulfills promises. He makes prophecies through special leaders who were chosen to deliver that message, and then he comes through at the right time in the right moment. Specifically, Jesus had come as the chosen Messiah, fulfilling these biblical prophecies. We've just looked at one, but there are dozens of them. And he was publicly announcing in biblical terms that he is both the Messiah and the ultimate king of Israel. Here's the second thing we learn. Jesus' arrival clashed with the Pharisees. So he was making a kingdom statement, and this kingdom statement and his arrival clashed with the Pharisees. In verse 19 of John's gospel, where John records the same event in chapter 12 of of his gospel, it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now we look at Palm Sunday from another angle. It's the angle from the view or the lens of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not represent all of Jewish people or even all of Jerusalem. The Pharisees were driven by rules and traditions more than the rest of Jewish people, and they were admired as being the most religious of the religious in that city. But in a growing cumulative way, they had openly criticized and even opposed Jesus 
as Jesus began to move from the small towns and villages and from time to time come back to the city of Jerusalem. They explained his miracles when they happened. They questioned his authority. The main reason for their opposition was that Jesus threatened their power and their prestige. So they and some of the other religious, of, religious leaders of the day were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus and even to kill him. And Jesus knew all of this. He knew all of this as he was making his way toward the city of Jerusalem. He'd been warned not to go to Jerusalem for this particular Passover festival. Now, it's interesting because there are three different Passover festivals that are recorded in the Gospels during three successive years when Jesus came to the city. And often Jesus was very prominent in the city. Sometimes he would sneak in kind of late and, and go under the radar. But then he would start teaching the people. This particular year, there was a lot of energy. There was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of anticipation. And there was also unrest because some people were openly opposing Jesus while others were sure that Jesus was the Messiah and he was going to unveil that for the world to see. And so he'd been warned not to go to the Passover this particular year, and the reason was that the Pharisees were looking for a way to arrest him. And other people knew that this was happening. If they could, the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus before this particular Passover could begin. Jesus' disciples were aware of the threat, and they had warned Jesus not to go, almost begging him, saying, let's not go this year, let's just stay away. But repeatedly, he told them that he had to go to Jerusalem and that when he went there, he would suffer and die and on the third day rise again. The Pharisees represented a branch of teaching that distorted Jewish faith. Their traditions led to a kind of spiritual pride that was based on performance. By keeping their own strict customs and laws, they were convinced that they were more pure and more righteous than all the rest and that this was the pathway that God wanted. Jesus also repeatedly called out the Pharisees for the condition of their hearts, which was very pride-filled, and for the extra burdens that they placed on people who were simply seeking God and wanting to follow God. All of their rules made it harder and harder to find their way to having an open-hearted approach to God. This clash was the source of their opposition to Jesus and to their desire to kill him. Notice what John's gospel adds at this moment. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So their response to the waving of palms and the laying them down in the roadway and Jesus riding into the city made them think that the whole city of Jerusalem was going to turn and begin to follow Jesus and no longer follow them. And Luke adds that as he was teaching, all the people hung on his words that day. You can bet this frustrated the Pharisees. They wanted a Jesus they could control or none at all. And realizing on this day that they could never control him, they were jealous and even more determined that they wanted Jesus out of the way. So here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus comes as a king who smashes false expectations and who calls for total allegiance. On one hand, this ought to encourage us because Jesus blows away the myths and the, the false standards that sometimes can arise around faith. On the other hand, it also ought to ups, up, upset us a bit 
Because if you and I hold on to false expectations about Jesus, creating a Jesus of our own where we think that Jesus is going to fit into our expectations or or our description of who he should be, he smashes those false expectations in order to lead us to something that is more pure and more right on with who he really was. And he calls for total allegiance as the Son of God and as God's chosen Messiah. And then there's a third clash that we see. Jesus' arrival clashed with the Roman Empire. So Matthew writes in verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, not not the representative Jesus, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I almost get the picture that there were some people who were walking out ahead of the the donkey and the entourage of Jesus and his disciples, and there's somebody out there waving one of those big branches, and they've appointed themselves as the, the, uh, uh, the Ed McMahon, if you will, of Palm Sunday. You know, this is Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I want everybody to know this is who this is. And this scene is just filled with emotion and drama and excitement and joy. So here's what we've seen so far. Jesus' arrival was a kingdom statement. He knew he was making this statement that he was the promised Messiah King. Second, Jesus clashed with the expectations of the Pharisees. And now we see how Jesus clashed with the Roman Empire. Waving and spreading palm branches was associated with the praise that was reserved for kings. There was also a historical precedent that had happened in Israel. In 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus had led Israel in a successful revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek ruler who had tried to impose not only Greek rule but also Greek religion on Jerusalem and on Israel. This is a victory that is still celebrated in the festival of Hanukkah by our Jewish friends every year. In the celebration, the people had cut down palm branches and laid them on the road as Judah Maccabeus made his way back to the city in order to be honored. The people were recognizing that, that Judah had done something great and that he had, he had brought about their freedom. And the Romans were aware of all of this. They were aware of the historical symbolism They were aware of who Jesus was. Methodist pastor Ken Sauer writes that a few years earlier, Pontius Pilate, who had been appointed as the procurator or the governor of Judea by the Roman emperor, came from the west side of the city with all the trappings of political power. So there were signs of imperial power that he invoked that day. Horses, chariots, gleaming armor. And Pilate moved in at the beginning of Passover week. He did this very specifically to exercise control over the city and to make sure that nothing got out of hand. So think of this. This had just happened a couple years earlier. And now Jesus comes riding from the east, not wearing uh, all of the gleaming armor of power, but wearing an ordinary robe, riding a donkey that had never been ridden before. 
for some, it, it presents almost a comical situation. I don't know if you've ever read a horse or ridden a horse that's never been broken before. I did one time on a farm in Illinois. The thing threw me off so fast, it did not want a human being on its back. So imagine a stubborn donkey never having had a human body riding on its back. And I get the sense this would go a few uh, steps forward, and then it would buck a little bit, and then a few more. And this is not the grand, dramatic, sweeping, powerful image of a white stallion coming to the city. It was meant to be exactly opposite of that. He came riding on a donkey to fulfill Scripture and also to signify a gentle reign of this king. He was a king, but a different kind of king, a king who rules in the heart and not with physical power. But make no mistake... Jesus came as the chosen, rightful king sent by God for Jerusalem, for Israel, and for all the world. His arrival on Palm Sunday calls to all of us. His arrival begs the question of whether we will give him our complete allegiance as God's son and as the rightful king who rules over the kingdom of God. But today, as then, some will choose the safety of religious traditions instead. Some will choose the trappings of political power that gives us a greater sense of security. While Jesus calls for a complete shift of allegiance of the human heart. Between our two services today, there are four people who are choosing to be baptized. We practice what we call a believer's baptism by immersion. It's not submersion. It's not about how deep you go under the water. Although I joke with some of my friends who have lived really wild lives, we hold you down extra long to make sure that it sticks. (laughs) We don't, but we joke about that. And it has more to do with the imagery around it. In being immersed, one is covered by the water. And so there are powerful pictures that are involved in that. One of those pictures is the idea that we symbolically participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. So when somebody is lowered under the water, it it symbolizes participating in the death of Christ, that, that he was in a burial tomb for three days. And then they're raised up signifying the newness of life that comes when the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of Jesus is alive in us. There's a second picture that's involved in that, and it has to do with the idea of the washing away of our sins. It doesn't happen at this moment. This is symbolic. The Holy Spirit does that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we repent of our sins. And the third picture is of the filling of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. On the day that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Gospels say that the skies opened and the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus or just above Jesus, and God's voice spoke. And said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so it also has the the picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out on us. Just as we might pour water on somebody. So immersion is simply the mode that we most often choose. Because it appears to be closest to what we read about in the New Testament. So here's the idea. Jesus comes as the king who smashes false expectations. And who calls for total allegiance. I want to close this with a story that Ray Steadman wrote years ago about a missionary couple in the early 1900s. They'd spent most of their lives working in Africa, and they were returning to New York to retire. They were tired, their health was broken, they had no pension. They were defeated and discouraged and afraid. As they returned, they discovered that they were on the same ship that 
President Teddy Roosevelt was on. He was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. No one paid much attention to this couple, but they watched the fanfare that surrounded the president and his entourage with passengers lining up simply to get a glimpse of him. As the ship made its way across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something is wrong with this. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa for all of these years and have no one that notices or cares about us? And here's this man who simply comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes such a big deal about it. His wife said, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. He said, I can't help it. It just doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, there was a band there to greet the president and the mayor and other dignitaries were all lined up. All the major newspapers covered the story. But nobody even noticed this old missionary couple as they slipped off the ship, found a cheap flat on the east side of New York, hoping that over the next few days they could figure out how they would make a living in that city. That night, the old missionary spirit broke, and he said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. And his wife replied, why don't you go off to your bedroom and tell that to the Lord rather than to me? So he did. A short while later, he came back, and when he returned from the bedroom, his face was noticeably different. And his wife asked him, what happened? He said, the Lord settled it with me. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous welcome and fanfare and homecoming when no one met us when we returned home. And as I finished with my complaint, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. Think about it. Jesus rode a donkey into the city identifying himself as the true king of God's kingdom in a way that would lead him to the cross because he didn't care about the rewards that are given out in earthly capitals like Jerusalem. But he had his eyes set on the greeting and the welcome that would come when he returned home to heaven. When you fear that nobody sees or cares the way that you are holding on in faith, remember this, you're not home yet. The only recognition that truly matters is the one that comes when God the Father welcomes you home. And one day, we'll hear that voice when we get home. Jessica, you ready? Excuse me, Jaime. Do I need to turn this on or... Is it already? Okay, thanks. Jessica, my friend, um, you wanted to say a word about why you're choosing, choosing to get baptized today. Yeah. What do you want to tell us? So um, I've been a member of this church normally. I'm at the 11 a.m. service, um, and I came here when I was younger, and that's when I came. Uh, and I was baptized at 11, but I didn't really understand as much what I was doing. I um, knew God was real, but I didn't really... I, feel it and my faith kind of grew but I strayed from that a lot and you know I was drinking and I wasn't thinking about God and I realized that I need to change and I've continuously been working on that and I've been praying and I realized that as a Christian and the whole point of being baptized is 
to understand that God is real. And not only is he real, but like I need to walk with him and change the way that I am and my behavior. And um, today is actually the half year birthday of my sobriety. And um, I was born on Palm Sunday. Jessica, do you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Yes. And you want everybody here to know that from this point on, you want to follow him as best as you can. Yes. Whether you make mistakes or not. Yes, I'm a... Okay, okay. I'm going to put this down here. Come on over here. Why don't you climb in? your knees up against here and sit on your bottom. There you go. And you can look at Jesus. Okay. Jessica, based on your confession of faith in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. I'm going to pray. Let me pray with you, okay? Father God, Father, we pray for Jessica, and we ask that as she has honored you with her words and her actions today, that you will honor her in the way that you continue to fill her with strength and with peace of heart. I ask that your spirit will fill her with spiritual gifts that you desire for her to have in order to bless others, and that you will make her growth track one that is steady and solid and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings. Please stand as we close out our service with this great celebration of baptism. And again, remembering our Lord this Palm Sunday.